Um, well, I'd like to begin this morning by telling, or probably more accurately retelling, um, a familiar story. It may not seem like a Christmas story at all, but it, I think it's certainly relevant for our Advent time. This is the story of a very wealthy farmer. His land wasn't measured in acres and quarters so much as it was measured in districts. He had a cattle district, a shepherding district, and several large cropland districts where fields of wheat and hay and corn stretched into the horizon. There is iron to be mined in the coolies, logging in the forests, and the largest chicken farm on the prairie, known as Golden Rose Chicken Farm, since it was larger than his neighbor's Silver Rose Chicken Farm. Golden Rose, just a little bit bigger. The farmer oversaw all of this vast agricultural empire with the help of his seven sons and three daughters, each of whom managed a separate district of the estate. A small army of employees armed with the newest and greatest machinery and tools ensured the health and success of every calf, lamb, seed, and sprout. And chick. And chick. I actually have chick written here and I skipped over it. Don't forget the chickens. The name of the great farmer was known across every ranch and river, every hamlet and hillside, over every farm and forest. And with the name of the great farmer came a sterling reputation. See, the farmer was not great solely because of his financial clout and sprawl of resources. He was great because of his generosity, his integrity, his kindness, and his hospitality. Many stories have been told of alcoholics on the road to recovery or former convicts with hopes of starting over being given a garden to tend or a hammer to swing or a small flock to watch and reciprocating that generosity with diligence and faithfulness. Entire crops and orchards were left unharvested in the autumn so that any homeless neighbor who had refused his invitations to hospitality could glean their own food as needed. He didn't donate to schools and hospitals so much as he built and fully supplied them. Mistakes were met not with punishment, but with forgiveness and training. And like their father, each of the ten children who served as district managers knew the names of each employee, from head rancher down to the young teenager who cut the grass in the summertime. On the first week of every new season, the great farmer would invite every one of his workers, as well as his many neighbors, to a quarterly jubilee on his estate. After prayers and songs of thankfulness and praise, a great banquet was opened up, with the table waiting done by the great farmer and his wife, as well as their ten children and their families with them. After the meal, family or money bonuses were issued to each and every employee before all were invited to a great fair-like celebration. Games, treats, and dancing for young and old alike. But their recently received bonus money was no good to them there. Every penny was paid for by the farmer himself as a show of appreciation to his workers and to his God alike. The great farmer was beloved by all who knew him his wife, his children, his workers, his neighbors, and his friends. When others spoke of the great farmer, they immediately gave thanks to the God that he served. The churches he funded were places of humility, joy, and service, and the great farmer was often seen clapping his hands and singing with eyes closed and face turned upwards, smiling as a tear leaked down his face and into his calloused hands, and whenever people shook his hands and thanked him for all he had done, he responded with a smile that God is good and his blessings are endless. And surely, to those around him, God's goodness could be plainly seen in the goodness of the great farmer, and they believed, and in fact hoped, that the blessings would indeed be endless for this humble giant of the farmlands. But on one cruel summer's evening, the blessings would end, and the goodness of God would be called into question, as conflict and tragedy usurped peace. It was a hot and windy evening of September's quarterly jubilee. 
The great farmer had retired from the party early, being somewhat less nimble than the revelers who had been, he had been entertaining. It had been an unusually dry and difficult summer. Portions of crop and woodland had suffered, and a few of the weaker animals had been too parched to survive. But the great farmer had reserves for just such a thing. It hadn't proven to be too substantial an issue yet. There were still a great many reasons to carry forward with the Jubilee. He told the group, If we can sing and pray and celebrate in the years of plenty, then we'd better be prepared to do the same in a down year as well. The great farmer told himself that again, as he sat down next to his wife for a glass of fresh milk before bed. Suddenly, they were interrupted by the sound of footsteps pounding the gravel entranceway, as a strained voice beckoned for the farmer. Rushing into the room and vibrating with urgency, the messenger tried to explain himself, but kept sputtering and coughing. He was covered in soot, and the smell of smoke was so strong in him that the farmer recoiled gently. As he attempted to make sense of the scattered story he was hearing through fits of coughing, the farmer looked out the veranda, where even in the dim light of dusk, a menacing black smoke could be seen. Immediately, the situation came into focus. The great farmer left the traumatized messenger and ran towards the ever-increasing smell of disastrous incineration, towards the site of the quarterly jubilee, towards everyone he loved and was responsible for. He ran towards tragedy. Apparently, one of the party goers had been lighting fireworks, which was standard for the jubilee, but not on a dry, windy jubilee such as this. Once it had grown out of control, the great farmer's children, ever as gracious and sacrificial as their father, had begun escorting everyone to safety. They would not leave until everyone was accounted for. Apparently, the children had fled together to the basement of the eldest son, high on the hill overlooking the farmland, but the house did not prove a refuge for long. When the great farmer arrived, the house was a collapsed pile of ash. The farmer sat there, weeping, the glow of the out-of-control fire shrinking away towards the woodlands and grasslands and ranchlands. When morning came, all was lost. Every field, every farm creature, yes, but more crushingly, his family, his friends. Wind and flame conspired to burn away the greatness from the great farmer's name, and he sat there, tears pooling in the charred soil, feeling empty and broken and alone. That was when he first felt the chest pains. Even a heart as big and beautiful as his reaches a breaking point. As he struggled and gasped, wondering if his maker would be reuniting him with his children so soon, the seconds continued to click away into minutes, but he was not dead. It was excruciating to move or even breathe, but he would not die. He was crushingly thirsty, and he was too afraid to close his eyes, and the onslaught of grief hammered into him relentlessly, but he would not die. Eventually, his wife appeared. She looked at the remains of the house, and the remains of her family, and the remains of her prosperity, and then she looked at her husband. You're not dead yet, she stated, rather than asked. You might as well be. Curse God and die, my love. Just give up. All is lost. He stared at her for a long time, then muttered, God is good. And with that, she left him there, immobilized by agony of the body, soul, and spirit. God is good. God is good. God is good. If I can sing and pray and celebrate in years of plenty, as he had once said to his revelers, I can do the same now. God is good. Over and over he repeated it, rotely and without meaning, between gasps and tears. It was evening again. The smell of smoke had not lost any of its potency, neither had the grief nor the pain. Suddenly the farmer felt something cold and wet on his face. He had forgotten what water felt like. 
He looked and saw three neighbors sitting in the dust beside him, staring off in the direction of the fire towards blackened fields and destroyed sheepfolds and endless ugly pain. They sat that way for seven days, the neighbors only moving to cover up the farmer at night or fetch water for his parched throat. No one spoke. That is, until the seventh day, when the farmer finally broke the silence, wailing out in misery, Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest. Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than any hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why not me? For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. No peace, no quietness, no rest, but only turmoil. Only conflict and trauma and tragedy. No peace. That was, of course, a retelling of what story, Bob? Job. That is Job. Minus all the strange God hanging out with Satan stuff from the real version. If you haven't read Job, you should read Job. And it's not a story that we often tell at Christmas, if at all. In fact, you may be questioning my purposes for telling such a depressing, tragic story on the Advent Day when we're commemorating peace. We don't like conflict and tragedy, obviously. I hate being in the presence of conflict. When I see people not getting along, I have physical reactions to it. Yesterday morning, um, the girls were fighting in the living room and I was still in bed because I am father of the year. Um, and <laughs> the girls are bickering about something and Angie's yelling at them to smarten up. And I hear all this. I hear the conflict. I don't get out of bed, but I hear the conflict. And I feel my heart rate increasing, my breathing getting shallower. I'm getting all jacked up on adrenaline. I I have this compulsion to solve the conflict, stop the fighting. It has to stop now. And so once I hear hear the fighting starting, it it needs to stop, which usually means me having absolutely no patience and blowing up and creating more conflict, which is always lovely. But that's my physiological response to conflict. And I feel it. I felt it laying in bed. My heart rate increasing. It's got to stop. It's got to stop. Some people thrive on conflict and are really good at creating conflict. Others are simply able to ignore it. My brother told me once that when his boys are fighting in the backseat, all he he does is turn up the car radio. I, I cannot function like that. I have to turn off the radio and find out what the heck are you two fighting about anyway? Knock it off. This is so frustrating and ridiculous. Just stop already. I just want to listen to the Beatles again. So stop, stop, enough. Or something like that. The conflict is not solved, but it's dealt with for now. So I turn back on We Can Work It Out by the Beatles. All you need is love. And ironically, conflict sucks. I am willing to address conflict, especially when I am the cause of it, because I know that's the only way to get past conflict. But conflict stinks. It's the worst. I hate it. Conflict is evidence that we are living our lives apart from how God intended. That's all conflict is. It's actions or behaviors or beliefs or speech or anything about us that reflects a separation from God's will. That's conflict. And tragedy, tragedy is simply a recognition that our broken world is indeed broken. When we see the brokenness and name it for its brokenness, we are acknowledging tragedy. Which is why tragedy at Christmas seems extra tragic. Dale mentioned how um, joyfulness and, and kindness 
is extra joyful and extra kind at Christmas, it seems like. Well, the reverse is true as well. Tragedy at Christmas seems extra tragic. Christmas is supposed to be about hope and joy and love. It's supposed to be about peace. And so conflict and tragedy over the holidays seems especially blasphemous. Like there's something especially wrong about a a family fighting around the Christmas feast. Like we'd be like, no, this is Christmas. Like knock it off. You're supposed to, it's the one time you're supposed to be okay with each other. Um, Even to the average non-Christian, it feels blasphemous to fight on the holidays. That's because conflict and tragedy are the antithesis to peace. They are the opposite of peace. But it's interesting. As much as we hate conflict, especially at the holidays, we sure see a lot of conflict in Christmas stories. I mean, every story needs some kind of conflict or else it's not a story, um, or at least not an interesting story. For a story to be engaging and meaningful, the protagonist must meet an antagonist and there must be some kind of conflict. That's, that's what the grade sevens are learning in English class now. There has to be conflict for it to be a story. Famously, there is person versus person. In Job, that would include great farmer versus cynical, depressed wife. Um, person versus nature, the great farmer versus the wind and the fire. Person versus self, great farmer wrestling with the idea of praising God when his life is good and when his life is ruined and this inner turmoil is person versus person conflict. And, of course, person versus God, which is, of course, the primary conflict in the book of Job. Every story has some kind of conflict, because to be human is to experience conflict. It's to know pain and heartache and suffering. But at Christmas time, our stories are filled with especially tragic tragedies and especially conflicting conflict. In A Christmas Carol, the Cratchits have a crippled boy, and their money-hungry boss has just fired Mr. Cratchit, and they might all die an impoverished death. Tragedy and conflict. In It's a Wonderful Life, which I still haven't seen, by the way, if you remember from last year, but I know that there's severe depression and suicidal ideation is like the the central theme of the movie, tragedy and conflict. In Rudolph, there's bullying and social isolation. We're a couple of misfits. Tragedy and conflict. In Miracle on 34th Street, Santa Claus gets arrested unjustly. Santa Claus himself gets arrested unjustly. Tragedy and conflict. And going a step further, in The Santa Claus, Tim Allen accidentally murders Santa or something and has to give up his comfortable life to become a new Santa or something. Murdering Santa definitely qualifies as tragedy and conflict. You could add Home Alone, The Grinch, Die Hard. Tragedy, tragedy, tragedy. Conflict, conflict, conflict. While they aren't nearly as tragic and conflict-ridden as the book of Job, Christmas stories are full of very human people, as well as reindeers and elves, who have been broken almost completely over the anvil of tragedy and conflict. They end up like Job, ruining the day they were born, sitting in agony, wishing they were dead so they could finally be free of pain, crying out to God and wondering why is this happening, longing for quiet and rest and peace. The book of Job is a fascinating book. Job's three friends come and grieve with Job silently at first until he begins to do what we would all do in such a tragic conflict, ask God, why is this happening? All of his friends think there must be something that Job has done to anger God, and that's why he's suffering. And over and over and over again, the great farmer reasserts his greatness. He is blameless and innocent before God. He even refused to curse God after his own wife urged him to. Instead, He declares that God is good even in the midst of terrible pain. And so for 30-some chapters, they bicker back and forth about the cause of Job's suffering. But then, God can remain silent no more. 
In the midst of Job's crushing agony of spirit, body, and soul, God declares, brace yourself, little man. Brace yourself, because the Almighty's got some questions for you. And what, what we read next is just the best. God starts peppering Job with rhetorical questions like, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Do you set the ocean boundaries and, and the heights of the mountain peaks? Do you set the stars in the sky? Do you know where the sun goes when it's nighttime and lead it out every morning? Do you give rain to the earth at just the right time? Did you design Orion's fancy astral belt? Did you do that, Job? And Job's feeling very small and he says, uh, no. And God continues. But he goes from the cosmically big to the intimately tiny. And he says, Job, do you help the lioness catch prey to feed her cubs? Do you watch and rejoice when the doe gives birth to her fawn? Do you give the ostrich blinding speed to compensate her stupidity? Did you design the hawk to have superb vision to find craggy heights to make her nest? Did you do that, Job? Do you watch over all these little creatures? Hmm? Do ya? And Job feels even smaller and he says, uh, well, no, I, I guess not. And so God combines in his, his finale, combines the bigness of creation with the smallness of animal life by describing the mysterious behemoth and leviathan. Two ancient portraits of chaos and conflict. A whole chapter is dedicated to every powerful detail of Leviathan, the creature who no man could subdue. His scales, his teeth, his fiery breath, his ferocity, he is beyond the control of even kings and warriors. A creature with no equal. But do you know what, Job? God says, or insinuates, I have control over Leviathan. You can never put a hook in its nose, but I tame that thing. I am in charge. I am in control. It may be conflict and tragedy personified, this Leviathan creature, but it is under my control. And that is how God responds to Job's suffering. That is God's answer to human conflict and tragedy, to life in a fallen world where very little that we say or do looks much like what God intends for us. His answer is, well, he never actually gives an answer. He doesn't look Job in the... In the face and say, this is why you're suffering. He doesn't. All he does is demonstrate how he is in control of everything he created, both the immeasurably huge and the immeasurably small, both the foundational physical orders of the universe and the tiny invisible moments between his beloved creatures. If God can be so unthinkably huge as to create the heavens and the earth and so unfathomably wise as to know its inner workings intimately, and so unceasingly loving towards every aspect of his creation, great or small, well, then maybe he's big enough and wise enough and loving enough to step into our tragedies as well. Which brings us to Christmas, which is the act of God stepping in to do that. The Christmas story only uses the word peace twice about the arrival of the Messiah, and both are in Luke 2. Once when the angels proclaim to the shepherds peace on earth to those on whom God's favor rests, Peace on earth, they proclaim. And once when old Saint Simeon takes the newborn king in his arms and declares, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. The only time peace is explicitly mentioned, but peace is all over the Christmas story, even in the presence, as we mentioned before, of tremendous conflict. Mary, an unmarried teenager, commits to becoming pregnant in a society that may shun her for her perceived sexual immorality. That's the conflict of person versus society, conflict and tragedy. Joseph, unsure what the right thing is to do, that's person versus self, 
conflict. Herod, he commits genocide in a tyrannical act of power and self-preservation because the baby king poses a threat to him. That is person versus evil tyrannical dictator. Conflict and tragedy. Shepherds minding their business, trying to stay warm when they're shocked and terrified by the presence of angels. That's the conflict of, of person versus soiled clothing. That's fear and conflict. An impoverished refugee couple fleeing to a neighboring country with newborn baby in tow to escape bloodshed in their homeland, a scene which is tragically all too familiar in our world today. That's person versus society. It's conflict. Not to mention the religious and political unrest throughout Israel and throughout Rome, not to mention the 300 years of silence imposed by God on his wayward people, not to mention the fact that God, as in God's response to Job, the, the cosmic creator, who is immeasurably larger than our feeble minds can conceive, is somehow condensing himself into weak and fallible human flesh and subjecting himself to the horrors and tragedies and conflicts inherent with being human. God is taking on this flesh, broken though it is. Add all that up, all that conflict, all that pain, all that suffering, all that brokenness, add it all up, and we begin to see how God's answer to Job was perfected in the arrival of his son, Jesus. See, God is powerful enough to set the foundations of the earth, right? That's his answer to Job. Jesus emptied himself of that power and became like one of us, refusing to use that power for his own selfish purpose. Selfish purpose. Selfish purpose. He had all that power in him, but he sets it aside. He sacrifices it and becomes like us, a baby What is more helpless than a human baby? Even like baby gazelles can get up and run away. Human babies do nothing. They're completely helpless. And that's how God came, completely devoid of the cosmic power he has. God is powerful. God is wise, wise enough to create a system where everything fits together beautifully in a harmonic balance. That's his answer to Job. But Jesus demonstrated that wisdom, not by being in control of every small working thing, but by serving others and living the life of a moneyless rabbi, refusing to cling to worldly distractions, but instead sacrificing himself in order to return our gaze back to the Father who created us and has a place for us, as he has in his wisdom a place for all his created things. God is wise. Jesus demonstrates that wisdom in unexpected ways. God is loving. God is loving enough As he said to Job, God is loving enough to provide for the needs of even the smallest creature. Jesus came to offer that same love to the smallest as well. The lowly and the lost, the broken and the beaten, the unseen and the unloved. And finally, God's answer to Job, God is in control of all things, even Leviathan itself, which is conflict personified. All of all all things are under God's command and control. Jesus is the calmer of storms, the healer of wounds, and the conqueror of death. In him there is no conflict, no tragedy, no suffering that we cannot overcome. God has a life and a world that he intended for all of us. That's his answer to Job. For all humanity, for all of creation, never mind you specifically, but you collectively, and you as humankind, and you as part of the created world. God has a world that he intended for all of us, all things. 
But characters like Job or Ebenezer Scrooge or Mary or King Herod, they remind us that our world does not look anything like the world God intended, right? We know that. It's very obvious to us. But Jesus Christ, however, our Emmanuel, our God with us, he is the one who leads us back to the life as it was intended. And that is the purest definition of the word peace that there is. Life as it's intended to be. In fact, the, the, the word peace as we know it, biblically, comes out of the Hebrew word shalom. And that's what shalom means. Life as it's intended to be. Peace is life as it's intended to be. A life lived in communion with our God. A life of joy and hope and love. Life as it's intended to be lived. That is peace. That is when we know peace. Starting with his arrival, Jesus shows that the God of power, wisdom, and love is in control, even in a manger, even as a fleeing refugee, even as a powerless, penniless Jewish kid on the fringes of Roman society. This baby, heralded by the wise, will lead us back to life as it was always intended to be lived. Life that experiences conflict and tragedy, but reigns supreme over it because he reigns supreme over it. He conquered life and death and tragedy. So hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness, Jesus our Emmanuel. Peace is when life is as it was intended to be. That is only ever experienced in Jesus, who offers a peace that the world cannot offer. You can ask Mary, who trusted in the gracious care of her God. She knew peace. Or Simeon, who died happily, knowing the wisdom of God had been set into motion. He knew of peace. Or Job, who suffered tremendously and didn't understand why until God made his power and his love obvious. He did that again when he sent his son to us. God's power, his love, his wisdom, his care, and his control. When we see that and experience that, and that's what Christmas is all about, Jesus coming as the human incarnation of those things. When we know that and see that, then we know peace then life is as it's supposed to be. The Prince of Peace who can make even our lives look more like they're supposed to. That's who we worship in the Advent season. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the peace that we have in you. And Jesus, we know that you, as Prince of Peace, accomplish that by emptying yourself of power, by by demonstrating true wisdom in how you cared for even small people like us, how you show your Father's love unendingly, just limitlessly to the people around you. And Father, I pray that we, as people who know that power, who know that love, who know that wisdom, I pray that we would be people who, like Job, sit in the midst of tragedy and see your goodness and respond with praise and love. Help us to bring peace to our broken world full of tragedy and conflict. Help us to be peacemakers and uh, people who represent you as the Prince of Peace. We thank you for the Advent season, Jesus, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, go in peace. Murdering Santa definitely qualifies as tragedy and conflict.